this time, if you would once again take your Bibles and turn to the very last book in the Bible, Revelation. And we're going to be looking at the church at Smyrna, particularly the letter to them. And I'll be reading to you verses 8 through 11 of Revelation chapter 2. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Here, God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And thus far, God's Word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us as we look into this letter to this ancient church of Smyrna, Father, and yet we know that this letter to them is really a letter to all of your churches through the ages, all of these last days. And Father, we see here a church that has come under persecution in particular. I pray that you would help us in our understandings of, of that situation at that time, but also be able to uh, relate it, relate to it, Father, in the times in which we live. And I pray that to that end, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we've begun to look at these letters as of last Lord's Day, we've already noted, as we're told in verse 1 of this book, in chapter 1, verse 1, that much of what is in here is in the form of symbolic language. And you probably already know that the number seven, as other numbers, have significance as well. Numbers like three, seven, four, all are significant numbers. And as such, you probably noted that there are seven churches that are uh, identified here. There were certainly more than seven churches in Asia Minor at the time, but the point being made is that these churches and what is written to them forms a kind of completeness as regards what our Lord would like to say to the churches. It's not just these seven that are affected by these letters. It's the church as a whole. Every church, every situation is pointing to the characteristics of churches, local churches, that had been in existence uh, around the world up all through the period of the time of the last days. These are representative churches, you might say. And again, the number seven is a completeness that's associated with that. All that Christ wants to say to the church uh, it are covered here. And in this particular uh, we, we see that there is, in particular, a, a local church focus here. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, we have these various characteristics that are used to describe our Lord and Savior. 
John writes, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of God, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. And the intention of presenting Christ in that way is to emphasize that the local church in particular are the focus of Christ's attention. He's the one who who loved us and washed as, us in his blood from our sins, as is told to us in verse 5 of chapter 1. So we're seeing a lot of characteristics of chapter 1 being applied individually to these churches. And Christ's intent here, and it certainly makes sense. He's one who's laid down his life for the churches. Certainly he takes an ongoing interest in the churches. And his intention in these letters is to comfort the churches of all these ages through the last days, to strengthen the churches, to encourage the churches, but also to warn the churches, because there are some significant issues that need to be dealt with, not just with these seven churches, but with churches throughout these many years that have occurred since this letter was written. And we've seen also that the symbolic language really uh, follows a, a particular pattern. Isaiah, and again, we're going to go right back to what I, happened to Isaiah, uh, warned the nation of the southern kingdom in his day of what was about to happen to him, to them. And he used very clear language to do that up through the first several chapters of the book of Isaiah. <laughs> And he was telling him of the coming judgment. But what had happened in his day was that had no effect to speak to the southern kingdom in those very clear terms. He was warning them that it was about to happen, it will happen to them, what happened to the northern kingdom if they don't repent, if they don't turn from their sins. Because that by this point in time, they had become emboldened in their idolatry, they had become hardened in their hearts, and they was a, there was a kind of a spiritual laziness that had overtaken the, the, the nation. And that's why, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 6, you'll read where a transition essentially takes place. Here we have the sending of Isaiah, this commissioning of Isaiah in particular, when the Lord asks... Uh, who will go for us in verse 8 of chapter 6? Who Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. And we read that the Lord said to Isaiah, Go and tell this people. He's already been telling things to the people, but it's going to be different. He's going to say, Go tell the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. In verse 9, make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. And then Isaiah asked, how long? And then he said, until the cities are laid waste, and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet, a tenth or a remnant will be in it. There will still be God's people, even in the midst of this terrible judgment. 
and will return and be consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. And so what occurred essentially in the ministry of Isaiah at this point in time, the people would not listen to clear language about the coming of the judgment. There was no use of imagery or metaphors or symbols. It was clear, but now if you follow his ministry, after this point in time with Isaiah, there would be more use of symbols and parables and metaphors. And you have to ask why. And that certainly brings to mind the very same question that the disciples asked of Jesus. We know that Jesus spoke in parables uh, largely during his earthly ministry. And we read in Matthew 13, the disciples asked him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you. Who's you? You are my people. You are the ones who uh, are able to hear. You have new hearts. You are regenerate. You are true believers. It's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it's not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. The Jews at this point in time in the earthly ministry of Jesus had basically entered into the same condition of the southern kingdom in the days of Isaiah. They were no longer listening to clear words, so they would be spoken to in parables. And there would be parables and imagery that the people would not understand and that they would resist it. But those that were God's people, the remnant, the tenth that were spoken of, they would hear it. And Jesus confirms that for us in verse 14 in Matthew 13. He says, in them, the parables, uh, the prophet, uh, uh, excuse me, the people, the, the unbelievers, in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, and here are the very same words that were given to Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus repeated them here. He says, hearing you'll hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and not perceive, why? For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So the use of parables and symbols and pictures have a, have a, have a dual usage. And what we're essentially seeing here is that the use of parables and symbols are a kind of a form of judgment on an unbelieving people. They will not listen to clear language, and so therefore it will be the parables that they certainly won't understand and make any uh, application of it for themselves. But to the remnant, to those who are true believers, they will respond to this in the parables, the symbols will have, as someone has described it, a jolting effect on the believers. Believers who have become careless. Believers who are starting to show signs of complacency and frankly of idolatry and compromise. That, that was the purpose. Uh, and when this letter, this vision was given to John, this was in the roughly in the 90s AD, at this point in time, the church, true believers, they were in danger. These kinds of things were beginning to happen. There were already signs of complacency in these seven churches. 
the, the, that was present. There were signs of uh, compromise. And therefore, the language in Revelation was used for a similar effect. An unbeliever would get nothing out of this. It would just be confusing. But a believer, by using this very graphic imagery of beasts and Satan and idolatry, they, they would be jolted, as it were. And that, that's why it's significant that you see some words repeated in the case of each of these churches. Look at the uh, verse 7, for instance, in chapter 2. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That implies an unbeliever will get nothing out of it. But for a believer for which this letter is intended, it's meant to, to shake up the church. It's meant to give imagery that is, quite frankly, scary. If you, we read through the book of, uh, of Revelation, and you see it, the same phraseology with this particular church, Smyrna, verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. You see it again with the church at Pergamos in verse 17. He who has an ear to hear this message, let him hear. This is for the believers, and it's meant to shake you up. You see it again with the church at Thyatira over in uh, verse 29 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear. You see it at the end of the church at Sardis, verse 6 in chapter 3. He who has an ear, let him hear. You see it with the church at Philadelphia in verse 13 of chapter 3. He who has an ear, let him hear. And again you see it in the letter to Laodicea, the very last verse of chapter 3. He who has an ear, let him hear. And so that explains essentially what God is doing here. The church has be, is on the threshold of becoming unfaithful because of and some of the problems that we're getting into. For instance, the church of Ephesus. They had lost that, part, that, that love for Christ was not manifest with that church in terms of them being a light. They essentially become introvert. And we'll see similar situations with the other churches. And so what we really want to do as we go through these letters to these churches is essentially rely upon the Lord to give us ears to hear. Because it was meant, it was not meant to be a mystery this book. It is a mystery to an unbeliever. It makes no sense. And many, uh, some people have simply ignored uh, the book of Revelation. It's, it's indecipherable and not important. When in fact, we read in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it. Why? For the time is near. There's a sense of urgency. These are important matters. And the Lord is using very dramatic imagery and symbol and effect to get the message across. It's almost you can almost picturing the Lord taking the church by the shoulders and shaking the church. Wake up! These kinds of things are slowly finding their way into the church. And nothing's changed in, in that regard. We see that happening in our own time as churches are starting to compromise to water down the gospel, to be more interested in tickling people's ears, afraid that somebody might get upset, any, any number of things, where these are tremendous truth, and it, it has eternal consequences as to how we, we uh, respond to these very things. Well, as we talked about these symbols, let's get into th this particular church of Smyrna, 
each church, and I think this was pointed out last week, it's prefaced the message to the church with something that's taken out of chapter 1 in regards to the way Christ is described. We saw, for instance, in the church at Ephesus, if you go to verse 13, that's one who, uh, that the church uh, is, is compared to a lampstand. But we also see in uh, verse 16 that Christ has in his right hand the seven stars. So you have the stars, the pastors, the leaders of individual churches are in his hand. He's the one who empowers them, helps them to be a communicator of the truths that are in the Bible, and that the church is a light stand. And that is a very important message that was given to the church of Ephesus because they had drifted away from that fundamental calling that they have as a local church to be a lampstand, to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to unbelievers. So we see the very same thing here. Another characteristic of the way Christ is described in chapter 1, given to us in the first verse of the letter to Smyrna, verse 8, we see to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write these, these things, says the first, the last, who was dead and came to life. That is exactly is a, a repeat of what is in verse 8 of chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And it is this characteristic of the Lord Jesus that is particularly applicable to the situation that was occurring in the church at Smyrna. As we look at that, those two things that are highlighted, this these things says the first and the last, let's look at that first, is really communicating to the church that, that God's absolute sovereignty over the history of the world, the entirety of it, it, it it's comprehensive. There is no anything outside of, of God's sovereign rule and overrule of this world. He is... The entire history, and it also is pointing to a certain end that history is going to come to. Uh, we are not on this planet careening mindlessly or without any kind of object in this universe. That God has a particular goal in mind, and God oversees it all. And it also speaks of the comprehension comprehensive end, as I said, which is what the fullness of our salvation. That's what it's being pointed to here, and that's what they needed to hear at the church of Smyrna, given the, the kind of persecution that they were enduring. They needed to hear things like what Peter wrote in his first letter in chapter 1, verse 4, that we have an inheritance that's what? Incorruptible. No man can give you an incorruptible inheritance that's not only incorruptible, but undefiled, and it doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you. They needed to hear that at Smyrna. And that's what was being communicated to them. I'm the Alpha and then the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. There's, there isn't anything that's outside of those boundaries that God presents there. They needed to hear uh, what John, the receiver of this vision, would write in his first letter uh, in chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, he's addressing believers when he uses that word, beloved. It's very pastoral the way he says it, very loving and gracious to them. He reminds them, beloved, we are children of God. 
And yeah, it's not yet been revealed what we shall be. God hasn't told us everything about when this age ends and what will happen at that time. But what we do know, and that has been given to us, that when He is revealed, when He comes again in great power and majesty and authority, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. What a what a marvelous and encouraging word that is from the Apostle John in that letter. He had to pause really in that letter, having mentioned our the fact that we are children of God. He stopped the beloved. What amazing love that we are children of God. What are the implications of that? And to know that whatever Smyrna Christians were going through or Christians of any age were going through in terms of testing and persecution and poverty, that there was an end that was determined already and that God is orchestrating all of those events to bring them to that conclusion. Paul, particularly as he spoke to Philippians, Philippians, the church, those who lived there, had took great pride in their citizenship of Rome. Uh, many soldiers who actually survived warfare and disease, uh, part of their uh, retirement package was to be able to live in Philippi and to be a citizen of Rome. And Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, he says in Philippians 3, verse 20. Quite a contrast. In our citizenship, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will happen at that time? Who will transform our lowly body. Whether it's in the grave, because you've died before Christ came again, it will be raised up wonderfully. Or if you happen to be living at that time. Paul talks about that. That those that are still living on earth, when Christ comes again, they will be caught up to be with the Lord. And their bodies in the twinkling of an eye will be transformed from corruptible to incorruptible, uh, from uh, finite to eternal bodies, that they they will be ultimately conformed to His glorious body. How? According to the the same working, that working by which He's able even to subdue all things to Himself. The people at Smyrna needed to hear that. They needed to hear that this will come to an end one day, this persecution, and that there is a goal, and that God is the God of history. There is this historical transcendence that's there. It's interesting that if you, the very last chapter in Revelation, almost like a bookend to this book, we see the very same words that are given to us in the opening chapter. We read in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1, Behold, He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, amen, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, how do we... The, the bookend to that is the very last chapter. Uh, chapters 21 and 22 are descriptions of the New Age. The last days have ended, the Lord has come to dwell among His people. And what do we read in verses 12 and 13 of Revelation 22? Behold, I'm coming. Quickly. He's talking to the saints who are still living in the last days and describing in these chapters what it will be like when he, after He's come and this age has ended. But to encourage them, behold, I'm coming. Quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to His work. I'm in the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first 
and the last. They needed to hear that. We need to hear that. We talked about that earlier today. You turn on the news, or you read the paper, any number of things, and you start to be have this cloud almost, a, a descend of darkness, and where is this going? And it seems so hopeless. It's not. God is in charge of it all. Everything that's happening is absolutely orchestrated by Him for His purposes, for His glory, uh, so that His people will shine brighter in this world by contrast. That's what we're to be, not this introverted church, but to be that light. And it's okay to be that light. God is overseeing it. We're under His sovereign control. There is, uh, as one put it, uh, God has this historical transcendence. There's nothing outside of His sovereign control. And that was a significant thing that, as I said, they needed to hear. It was important as regards their assurance. They were in the midst, as we're told in the letter, of of persecution. They were in the midst of tribulation. And as we were reminded earlier today, in this world you will have tribulation. And they were experiencing it in its various forms. There was poverty associated with their following of Christ. But they were also assured that Christ is there. Look at the, just those two simple words in verse 9. I know. Christ didn't have to get a, a Western Union telegram. He didn't have to look up an email. He didn't have to, at some later point in time, get a message from some underling. He's there in the midst of the seven lampstands that we read in verse 13. Right, He's here right now in this place where we meet as one of those lampstands. And He says, I know. I know your, your works. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know who it is who is persecuting. I know all about these kind of things. And, and maybe what we need to do at this point is just pause a little bit and talk about the setting, as it were, of the, of the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was very uh, comparable to Ephesus. Both of them were very prosperous uh, towns or cities. They were both seaports. It was only about 30 miles that separated them. It's very likely that Paul, we don't know for sure, but it's very likely that Paul planted this church as well because of the proximity. Uh, We know that Paul ministered at Ephesus for two years. But we also read in the Acts that 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 word got out from Ephesus to other places. And he could very easily have traveled quickly to Smyrna, come back. We don't know for sure, but there's a high probability of that. And uh, initially, at th- that point in time, which is perhaps around the 50s uh, A.D., the Christians were not under attack at that point in time. They were uh, under the umbrella of Judaism. As far as Rome was concerned, they were a, a branch of Judaism. And the Jews were treated actually in a very particular way by, by the uh, Roman government at that time. And by the way, just... Also to know that uh, about Smyrna, that that city in particular was very loyal uh, to Rome. The imperial cult, as it were, the worship of the Caesars, was very predominant in that city. That was a very big part of life in that city. But the Jews were actually excused from that. Uh, Maybe that's because they had been such a 
a, a place of unrest in, in, uh, in Jerusalem in previous years, so uh, the Roman government perhaps at that point in time uh, tried to keep everybody quiet by not putting particular pressure on the Jews at that time. But eventually there would come persecution because the Jews would rise up ultimately and uh, realize that these Christians are rocking the boat, as it were, for us. They're making claims that are making it difficult for us, very similar kinds of claims that Jesus was making about himself and uh, the, Paul himself would be making. They, uh, who, who are these Christians? They, they're actually worshiping a criminal who was given a criminal's death on a cross. They're, they're actually worshiping this one who claims to be God himself. And that was interfering with the sort of symbiotic relationship that they had with Rome. And as a result, the Jews started persecuting uh, the Christians at this point in time. And they, they started slandering them, telling them that, that these are false, these are heretics, and uh, they're interfering with the, the uh, lifting up of Rome. The, the Jews uh, earlier were, as I said, were given excuse. They, they, they would give homage to Caesar as he is a ruler, but they didn't have to honor him as he is the king. But here are these Christians coming along and, and uh, disturbing this very thing. And this is exactly what's highlighted here. Look what's said here. I know, I know your works, your tribulation. I also know who's giving you trouble. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, and they're not. There's a certain irony there. Here they're claiming to be the sons of Abraham, to be God's chosen people. It's very similar to the conversation Jesus had with the Jews in John chapter 8. They claimed to be the children of Abraham, and he said, no, you're not. If you were the children of Abraham, the spiritual children of Abraham, I know you can trace your blood lineage to him, but as far as your spiritual lineage, you're, you're sons of Satan. You serve him, he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, and so are you in the way that you act. If you really were sons of Abraham, you would be like Abraham. But that was not the case. And so the language is very direct here. It's stirring them up and saying, look, what's going on here? This is Satan that is active in here, that's, that's going on in this particular thing. And he calls them, they're, they're false Jews. They're not real Jews. This is the synagogue of Satan. And why would he say that? Because of their accusatory actions that were taken against the Christians? Isn't that one of the features of who Satan is? We had that picture in the later in Revelation of that war in heaven prior to the ascension of Christ. And what was Satan doing in heaven? He was accusing God of being unjust. What are all these people doing here in heaven? You're supposed to be a just and a righteous God. Here is, here is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these others who are terrible sinners and are unclean. What are they doing here? Of course, when Christ ascended and came onto the scene, they overcame him by what? The blood of the Lamb. It's the blood whereby these, now, these sinners are now declared to be righteous, to be just, and who are now purified because of what Christ had accomplished on the cross in the taking away of the guilt of their sin and overcoming death so that they would actually be in heaven. And it's interesting, as we go into Revelation, we, we're introduced to a couple of the beasts that rise there. What, what are they doing? If you read in other chapters, they're blaspheming. 
They're accusing God's people. Isn't, it, uh, uh, isn't that the ultimate uh, irony or the ultimate projection? We talk about the word projection. That's when you're accusing someone else of what you're doing. And essentially they were accusing the Christians of blasphemy when in fact they were the ones who were committing blasphemy. And the result was uh, great pressure was put on the Christians here. Uh, they, there was, it was oppressive. It was oppressive economically. Some of them could not work in the trades because of the association with some of the pagan temples, in particular the temples associated with the imperial cult. So life became very difficult. Paul, or the writer to the Hebrews, talks about that. In Hebrews chapter 10, these Christians, reminding them of what's happened to them, they were being tempted to uh, fall away, to go back to Judaism and temple worship because of the pressure they were receiving from other Jews. But he reminds them in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, You had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. That's the writer of Hebrews essentially saying to uh, his uh, readers that uh, what Jesus is saying here, I know your poverty, but you were rich actually. Yes, you might not have much in this world, but you're accruing a great wealth, a great reserve for yourself of glory and blessings in the life to come. So you're actually rich. And God has, Paul made it clear in Corinthians that God has chosen the weak of things of this world to confound the wisdom of the world. The world thinks you're rich if you have money. You're rich if you have position. You're rich if you can indulge in, in sex and whatever sinful aspect of life whereby people would say that we're rich. We have all of these things when in fact they're utterly poor. Where Christians are, are rich as far as being in God's sight. But not only were they economically pressed, uh, but many were going to prison, and some ultimately uh, were killed. There is a very dramatic account of one called Polycarp. Polycarp uh, around was a, a pupil of John who wrote this revelation. He knew John, and he was one who would become a martyr. He was the uh, bishop there at Smyrna around just very soon after this particular revelation was written. I'm sure he read it for himself. But in the year 155 AD, he ultimately would be martyred. And William Hendrickson in his uh, book, More Than Conquerors, gives an account. We do have an account of what occurred to Polycarp. He was arrested for his faith, ultimately taken to the Colosseum, the stadium. All these cities did have stadiums, and many of them were used to put Christians to death, and that happened to Polycarp as well. And we read about him that he had been asked to say, Caesar is Lord. That was the issue. But he had refused. And he was brought to the stadium, and the proconsul urged him, saying, Swear. And I'll set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. 
how can I then blaspheme my king and my savior? And the proconsul again pressed him. And the old man answered, since thou art vainly urging, since thou art vainly urging that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretendest not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. A little later, the proconsul answered, I have wild beasts at hand. You know that many Christians, particularly in Rome, were torn apart by these wild beasts, and he was threatened with that as well. And he said, To these I will cast thee, except thou repent. Repent meaning that you would finally acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. I'll cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing thou despisest the wild beasts, if thou wilt not repent. But Polycarp said, Thou threatenest me with fire, which burneth for an hour. And after a little while is extinguished. But you're ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. Soon afterwards the people began to gather wood and faggots, the Jews especially according to custom, eagerly assisting them. And thus Polycarp was burned at the stake. Some tradition has it that Polycarp's body was not burning to the satisfaction of those onlookers. So finally they were ordered to stab him, put a spear through him. Here's a man who died for his faith. It's highly likely that Polycarp, who knew of these letters that were written in the uh, as recorded for us in the vision of John were ones that he read and was encouraged to go to ultimately to death for his faith. And that's what he is being talked about, that some will be thrown in prison, you'll be tested, you'll have tribulation uh, through this period of time. That's what was happening in Smyrna. We've not yet seen that kind of thing happening here in America. But it is happening in other parts of the world. There are Christians who have been tortured to death. Not so many years ago, there were half a dozen or so pastors in Iran who were horribly put to death, uh, finally as as martyrs. So this this is the kind of thing that was going on there. But what does Jesus say through John? But don't fear. Peter said this in his first letter in chapter 4 verse 12 Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Perhaps you recall in our study of the letters to the Thessalonians Paul made this clear in chapter 3 of verse 3 of the first letter Don't be shaken by these afflictions that you're going through. They were experiencing very similar things. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. This is part of what it is to be a Christian. You will suffer. It will be oppressive. It will be difficult. But notice what he says in the letter here. You'll be you may be tested, you'll have tribulation ten days. Now that's symbolic language. Is it just ten days? It's probably 
many think that this is a kind of a referral back to the days of Daniel. Maybe you recall that when Daniel, along with his three companions uh, who were named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by the Babylonians, the king decided that they, Daniel and the three, were some of the brightest amongst the captives and the ones that could be taught and had knowledge, but they would have to go through a a time of training. They would uh, eat from the king's delicacies and drink wine as a way of preparation for their service ultimately to the king. But we read about Daniel in chapter 1 and verse 8, but Daniel, when upon hearing this, proposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he would drink. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Well, he was able to talk that that chief of the eunuchs into allowing them to only eat vegetables and water. And the eunuch was afraid for his life that he had ignored the command of the king. He was afraid that at the end of that, that Daniel and his friends would look terrible on that kind of a diet when in fact they prospered under that diet. They were in better condition, they looked better, and that occurred over a period of 10 days. And what are we to glean out, out about out that? It, it, it was a time of testing. Here's Daniel putting his faith to the test. He, we're not supposed to eat these things. He was mindful of the Mosaic Covenant that even in his situation in exile in Babylon, he was still supposed to honor his Lord, his God, and to be obedient. And he was willing to do that. And we've talked a lot about suffering, haven't we, over the last year, really, in our study of the book of Job. And we saw in his case there was much to his sanctification associated with that suffering. There was an issue in particular of pride that Elihu was the one who helped prepare him for his encounter with God speaking to him directly and pointed out pride's an issue. And through the course of that, we won't go through that again, we've talked about that at length, but Job came to see that he wasn't himself as righteous as he thought he was. Yes, he was a blameless man, but there were some issues to the point where he was justifying himself, where he was complaining about the administration of the world that God was exercising, that he could do better and if he could just straighten God out. But he would learn those things and that would be part of his sanctification. And of course he came to that place of repentance that he had spoken about things he didn't know what he was talking about. Here, this suffering that's taking place with this tribulation, the poverty, the slander that, that, that they were enduring from these uh, the Jews at this time, it, it, it's the testing of the genuineness of their faith. What will happen when these things occur? And that's what's also going on, because if you haven't been already, you will be confronted with the world, and the world in which we're living. How are we, are we going to react to, uh, to those things? Are we going to shy away? Are we going to try to hide? Are we going to realize this is part of our sanctification? Not, not all Christians are going to suffer to the level that someone like a Polycarp, or later on Paul and Stephen and Peter and others who were martyred for their faith. Not everyone is called to be a martyr. And so the ultimate uh, 
test, of course, is martyrdom, to, to die like Polycarp, and that would happen perhaps to more. There would be others who would <coughs> die in these early churches, and there are some who are dying today in churches in other parts of the world. And so what's the other encouragement? We've already talked about how it was pointed out to them that these things says the first and the last, speaking of God's sovereignty, his historical transcendence. But who's, what's the other part of that? He was dead and he came to life. That's a particular message that these in Smyrna needed to hear. They needed to be reminded that all man can do is ultimately kill you physically. He can't ultimately kill you. And this is the ultimate test, isn't it? Isn't this the true enduring of the faith? But what are we to be reminded of? Christ is risen. We don't need to fear, ultimately, death itself. Paul writes these things in that wonderful resurrection chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. But now, having said earlier that how miserable we would be if we could still go to the gravesite of Jesus, that would be of no use to us, no value to us. But, but now Christ is risen from the dead, he says in verse 20, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or who have died whether it be Polycarp, a martyr, or every Christian. For since by, one, by man came death, there's a reference to Adam, that's how the world got into the state it's in because of his rebellion, by man, capital M, Jesus Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. And there's the encouragement to the church at Smyrna. Yes, they can take your life. You can be burned at the stake. You can have a spear run through you, torn apart by animals, any other number of things that have happened over the course of these 2,000 years. And yet you need not ultimately fear it because they can't take away your inheritance, your eternal life in Jesus Christ. And as such, you become an overcomer. Those who persevere, and here's the message, those who persevere under the worst of these circumstances to them will be given the crown of life. James refers to that in his letter, chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Temptation to what? To deny Christ. Temptation under the pressure of of, of persecution, of uh, tribulation, to finally give in and give up your faith. Blessed is the one who endures And we can endure because we have a great God who's overcome death. We have a great God, a great Savior, whereby we have a supply of grace to get us through anything. And God, all we do is is ask Him, who has followed this path before we've gone down that path. Isn't He the one who is ultimately the recipient of what the church at Smyrna was experiencing? Was He not... Were not Jews blaspheming and accusing him of all manner of things? Finally, to the point where they would cry out, crucify him and get him nailed to a tree. He knows all about it. He knows when a Christian's going through this. He's, he emerged victoriously. Who, for the joy set before him, despised the cross and the shame, who would uh, knew exactly what would happen to him, that he would conquer the. the uh, demands of the law, he would conquer the demands of death, and that blessing would be to all of those who are in Christ. 
James went on to write, for when he has been approved, he will receive what? The crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's the great hope and promise that is being presented to Smyrna. I know you. I know what's happening to you. I know your works. I, I know who's doing these things to you. Don't fear. I'm the one who was dead and came to life. They can't ultimately uh, undo you. I've secured your eternal life. Beale has written this in his commentary regarding overcoming. He says, overcoming here, the use of that word here, refers to an ironic victory where in the earthly defeat of death, enemies can kill us. But here's the irony, is a heavenly victory in life. The world doesn't understand that. But Christians are being told to believe that, rest in it, and to know that they have a Savior who knows, who walks among the churches. He has in his, you in his hands. He's the first and the last. He was dead and he came to life. And we've been promised this ruling with him to share in his glory. And we won't participate in the second death. What is the second death? Well, the first death is when you physically die. The second death is when you're ultimately thrown into hell. That's the second death, that eternal death. Look what John, what we read about it as regards what Jesus said in John 5, verse 24. Jesus said, most assuredly, you can count on this. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. No matter what happens along the way, your journey to heaven. And shall not come into judgment, but has already passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. You're already, if you're a true believer, living this eternal life, as it were. You were amongst the dead, who at some point in time heard the voice of the Son of God, that was as, as it was impressed upon you and made effectual by the Holy Spirit who gave you what? Ears to hear. And a heart to respond. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment. Also because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who've done good, not meriting good, but doing good as evidence that they really do have a new heart and they are now serving the Lord out of love. Those who've done good to resurrection of life, the crown of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, the second death. That's it for sure. The believer... If you're a believer today, you are safe. You are in, in God's sovereign hands and no one can take you out of His hands. His orchestration of your life has already been determined and He's already given you His sustaining grace. And then what happens? An eternal life. That's what He's telling them here, no matter what's happening to them. Why? Of that assurance because there was one who was dead and he came to life. And we know who that is, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would continue to write in 1 Corinthians 15, 
almost in a mocking way, he would write, Oh, death, in verse 55, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, the place of the dead, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The law only condemns you. If you're trying to keep the law as a means of making yourself acceptable to God, you, you have a losing position. It is a bad agreement. The wages of sin is death. But Paul would go on to say this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, and here's what the takeaway is for us today, be steadfast, run, fight, keep the faith, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because Christ is the first and the last. He was dead and He came to life. Don't fear. In fact, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, as we read earlier today in His discourse with His disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read about Smyrna and we hear about Polycarp and we shudder when we think of what these early Christians were going through. And, and yet, even when the worst happens, and it continues to happen in this world, we've not seen it yet in this country, but we know there are other countries where Christians have been horribly persecuted, economically oppressed, been put to death in terrible ways because of the hatred of ultimately Satan, Satan's hatred of you, Satan's hatred of your people, and yet he can't ultimately remain emerge victorious. He's already been conquered. Death has been conquered, and life has been procured and secured for your people. Thank you for the promise that is there for us. Father, does anybody who's hearing this, who's not... Listen, Father, who doesn't have that ear to hear, maybe this is the day that they would hear, that the Spirit would open their ears to and take this warning to heart. The repercussions of not doing that are terrible. The second death, Father, we pray for anyone in that situation or anybody we know. May we have this, in talking to people, have that kind of urgency to help them to see the, the true story of what's happening in this world. This is satanic. This is a hatred. It shows up in various uh, euphemisms, the way words are used, excuses and rationalizing, but ultimately it is an unbelieving world that, in which we are engaged in warfare. Thank you that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.